Hello everyone, Caitlin here. As Discovery of Witches just finished airing on AMC in North America, we thought we'd celebrate with another bonus episode. During our regular episodes, we had short science sections with Dr. Anya, but when we were recording them, we all got super into it and recorded way more than we had time for in an episode. So I've edited together the full science sections from our first three episodes. You may notice when listening that there is no Mandy in these recordings, and that is because sadly her files have been lost to the depths of time but as it is mostly dr anya just schooling us anyways we thought it we thought it worked so please enjoy and let us know if you like this and you know let us know if you learned anything because i certainly did everybody. I am Dr. Anya. Uh, I have a PhD in evolutionary biology, and I was really interested in participating in this podcast um, because I'm super uh, interested in the way that science is portrayed in popular media um, and academia in general as well. Um, And so I read the book off of a recommendation of some friends and I thought it was really fascinating, um, and so I was super excited for the show as well. I also have some expertise in rowing, which isn't that important beyond this first episode, but I thought I would throw that in there as well. So I would say Diana's field isn't really alchemy. Her field is probably the history and philosophy of science, which is it's a little bit of a niche subject. Not all universities uh, have a department of the history and philosophy of science. It's something that a few universities really specialize in. But yeah, so her topic within the history and philosophy of science would be alchemy. And alchemy is uh, basically a philosophical and proto-scientific tradition uh, that's been practiced for millennia on three different continents. So across Europe, Africa, and Asia. Um, so it's it's a really broad field. And basically, its um, its goals are to purify and perfect certain objects and elements. Um, and, and specifically, it's well known um, that like alchemists were, you know, trying to turn things into gold. So basically like, turn certain elements into other elements. And so it's actually related to the modern discipline of chemistry. And they actually even have the same roots, uh, alchemy and chemistry. It comes from the Greek term chemia, which means to fuse or cast a metal. Um, And then alchemy is the Arabic form of that. A lot of Arabic words have, um, they start with the syllable al, so like algebra, alchemy. Yeah, so alchemy is much older than modern chemistry, but they actually overlapped a little bit in history. And what we think of as modern chemical science actually borrowed a lot of ideas and techniques that were developed earlier in alchemy. And so modern chemistry is, instead of trying to like perfect or transform elements, um, it's more interested in 
the scientific study of different elements and compounds and describing uh, their composition, structure, properties, and behavior, um, and specifically like chemical reactions from one substance to another substance. And so based on modern chemistry, we know that there are like pure elements that are like the smallest uh, subunits of matter, basically atoms. And then atoms can be combined into other uh, molecules, chemicals, and substances. Um, whereas, like, alchemy didn't necessarily have that perspective. And so, a lot of alchemy's goals are actually, like, pretty impossible, right? Because in order to change one element into another element, you have to change the number of protons. And, and that's just, Basically, it's not technically impossible, but it's basically impossible. Like, you need a particle accelerator to get enough energy to do something like that. Like, messing with the nucleus of an atom is just so hard. <laughs> um, and so, so what a lot of alchemy was trying to do, we actually can do it nowadays using modern physics, basically. Um, but you need, like, a billion-dollar particle accelerator. So, well, just a second. Um, so how, A, I just learned so much. But if we can't... Okay, yeah, sorry. I guess that was like a lot of knowledge to drop all at once. <laughs> if, um, uh, if we can do alchemy now, how long until we get the elixir of life? So alchemy is um, philosophical and scientific, kind of fused together. So, so like, obviously, um, we're not going to be able to create an elixir of life to create immortality. Like, that's physically impossible. Um, what I was talking about Dash more my is... Hopes. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Alchemy's goals of sort of like being able to create gold or turn one element into another element. Like we can kind of do that. It's like very expensive and energetically costly. Um, and so we would, it's like not really done on an industrial scale, but we kind of just do it for the love of science and to prove that we can. And it's only been possible for like the past couple decades. Maybe maybe a little bit longer than that, but certainly since like you know the '60s or '70s, particle physics is not really my expertise. Um, so I have friends that are that work at accelerators, but I don't know the field in depth enough to know uh, all about the history of how that field developed. Right. So I'll have to talk to one of them about becoming immortal. Yes. Right. Yes, but I do I do think it's really interesting, right? The way that sort of like. In the popular conception, we think about, you know, like science and pseudoscience, and they're like completely separate and, and don't really fuse together that much. Um, but, you know, it turns out that, you know, what we think of as modern scientific chemistry owes so much of its um, techniques and ideas to alchemy. And, you know, if you asked a chemist in the 40s and 50s, like, what was the difference between alchemy and chemistry? They would have said, you know, like, oh, well, we can't turn elements into other elements, but like now we can. So at this point, like chemistry has, or at really physics has come so far that we can sort of achieve these aims of alchemy that, um, you know, seemed impossible before. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's actually um, a Smithsonian article um, that you guys can link in the show notes that talks about the sort of resurgence of history of science scholarship regarding alchemy uh, that happened in the 1980s. 
And it's super fascinating. And you can see that um, Deborah Harkness, the author of the book, was drawing on a lot of real alchemy for her book. And if you read the article, you can see that Deborah Harkness was drawing on a lot of real historical alchemy for the book. Um, And there's one quote in particular that I thought really illustrated that. Um, The author says, "Uh, Historians of science began deciphering alchemical texts, which wasn't easy. The alchemists, obsessed with secrecy, deliberately described their experiments in metaphorical terms laden with obscure references to mythology and history. For instance, text that describes a cold dragon who creeps in and out of the caves was code for saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate, a crystalline substance found on cave walls that tastes cool on the top. And so um, Deborah Harkness, she's actually a real professor of history, and she teaches European history and history of science at the University of Southern California. And she's published two work two books of like nonfiction books, one of which is on alchemy. And so, yeah, she's basically like <laughs> drawing a lot on her personal experience um, and expertise with alchemy and sort of feeding that into Diana's research interests and the, the plot points of her book. And just as a side note, she also has an award-winning wine blog called Good Wine Under $20, which I think has also worked its way into the book because they're pretty much drinking wine in almost every scene. Yeah. I always think of these books as like Deborah Harkness's James Bond, you know, just complete wish fulfillment. Yeah. <laughs> Not, And there's nothing wrong with that. I like it. It's great. Um, so I actually had a question for you guys. I was curious how old you thought Diana was based on the way that she's portrayed in the TV show. So the book has an exact answer for this. Mm. I It's been too long. In the book, uh, she's 33. Okay. That makes sense. That's like, yeah, that's like about as young as it would be reasonable for it to be. And I mean, it's like, it's on the young side, but it's like, not um too crazy for like a hot shot um to get tenure at that age um, i was just curious because i think a lot of people who like don't really understand the academic system or like how tenure works or like how long it takes to get a phd wouldn't necessarily guess that she's in her mid 30s um and i actually think it's great that there's a heroine who's in her 30s because you know so much of of you know like fantasy um tv and books and stuff you know focuses on basically like high school age or like maybe college or mid-20s if if you want to be kind of edgy and so like you know heck yes give me a heroine in her 30s yeah I'll, I'll take definitely. it yeah so basically you know in terms of like how she would have gotten to her position right so you she would have had to get a bachelor's you know so you finish undergrad at maybe like 22 and then um it would take like if you skip a master's and go straight into a PhD, you could probably finish a PhD in like four or five years. So then at that point, um, she's like 26 or 27. And then if she immediately gets a tenure track professor job, it usually takes about seven years, at least in science, um, to get tenure. I don't know. It might work slightly differently for history. But even, yeah, I just like, I feel like 
some people might hear like, oh, she's so young, like she's probably like 25. And it's like, no, 33 is really young for having tenure as a professor. The, the actress was also, I think, 32. Or she is 32 oh. now. Okay. So she about the same age. Mm-hmm. That's good casting. Yeah. The actress. I'll say yeah, it- Teresa Palmer is also 32. She's the, that is the name of the actress? Okay. (laughs) Clearly I've done my homework for this show. Yeah, in general, I thought the portrayal of academia in the show was really spot on. Um, Especially, like, her interactions with Jillian Mm -hmm. um, early on. And that's sort of like, you know, uh, faculty jobs are just, like, really few and far between and really hard to get. And so there's a lot of, of kind of, like, competition and career jealousy and awkwardness and it's like even you know like you don't have to want it it's just like there and kind of unavoidable when you meet somebody and you're just sort of like oh it's been a few years like you know the last time I talked you were doing this postdoc here like what are you currently doing and then when they're like oh well I'm actually like kind of between stuff right now or you know like (laughs) right I'm on my third postdoc like yeah, I I just, that was, it just, like, made my heart ache a little bit with familiarity when they were doing all of that. The one thing that did strike me as unrealistic is that um, when Matthew goes into her apartment and, like, rifles through all her stuff, like, it seems like she's only been in Oxford for about a week, and she's only planning on being there for a year. Like, I know a lot of people who you know travel around or move around for temporary positions and like we get very good at traveling light I was like there's no way she like actually had all of that stuff shipped from New Haven to Oxford I did find it a little interesting or just like a little weird that you know she like gave this talk that everyone clearly loved and then they were like oh you can just like write up you know, like, the paper's almost done, right? And she's like, yep, almost done. And then she's, like, literally going back to the library and reading, like, you know, 15 new books that she's never read before. Like, that's not really how the academic workflow goes. Like, if you're presenting an hour-long seminar about a topic, it's, like, pretty complete. And she should be able to write it up without doing that much more research. You know, like, if she was able to do the talk without any of the Ashmole text before, she should, like, all her Ashmole research should be for, like, her next paper or, her you know, her next book or something. I don't right. Know. I will say in the book, she did not give a talk. Mm, she, I she, see. Right. So I think that was just there to visually introduce alchemy to the viewers. I see. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I think overall it worked. And if you, I think if you like aren't super familiar with the academic workflow and and like how long it takes to put together a paper, it wouldn't have stuck out. But it did just kind of feel a little weird to me. I can see that. It's also where Deborah Harkness had her cameo, and I. Oh, she was in there. I totally missed that. I where, despise where author cameos, no matter what. what. You can't say that in the same week that Stanley just died. <laughs> I don't feel one way or the other, really, about Stanley. She was sitting on the right, kind of behind somebody. I guess my problem with, with author cameos is that I can never look anywhere else, and they just seem so obvious to me. 
but also I suppose not everybody out there like goes to author signings and follows authors on Twitter and that sort of thing. So it might not bother other people. Oh yeah, I had no idea that it was in there. Oh, well. Lucky for you both. And then I had one other final thing that I wanted to talk about um with regard to the like academic y and sciencey parts of of the the show, which was that my first reaction when watching the episode was I can't believe she's handling this like amazing ancient text with her bare hands. Um, like, don't you have to wear gloves for that? Uh, and so I uh, sent a message to our friend uh, Paul Moffat, who is uh, at that Paul Moffat on Twitter. Um, Cause he's a, a medieval literature specialist faculty. And I was asked. And so I asked him about that. And he said that actually, you know, the standard of a few decades ago was to wear gloves when handling ancient manuscripts. But now uh, people tend to actually just use their bare hands. Um, You just you like wash your hands right beforehand and make sure that they're like very clean and dry. And it turns out that actually the like because when you wear gloves, it sort of decreases your manual dexterity. It actually makes you more likely to tear or rip a page. And so they're more worried about that than they are about you getting, you know, like oils from your hands on it. Um, so the trend now is basically to not wear gloves when working with ancient texts. Uh, and Teresa Palmer, the actress, has mentioned that she did some training on handling ancient manuscripts. Oh, really? That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, although I will say they cut out or they changed, I suppose, my favorite bit of Diana in the book where there's a bit where she's talking to a character we haven't met yet in the book or talking about a character we haven't met yet in the TV show. And she very snarkily thinks, I bet he would have touched the pages. A and you can just tell that that's like her worst thought about <laughs> about how somebody could be. Um but of course, in the opening, in the TV show, they have her put her full palm against the page, which book Diana never would have done. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I Yeah, I guess I didn't remember that because it's been so long since I've read it. And so I thought that at the, the end of these segments, I would kind of like go through um, what we've learned about the world building and the science that's driving the main plot of the book. Um, so then maybe, you know, we can kind of evaluate how much it makes sense and like how will we think the world building itself holds together and so from this episode basically what I took away is that um, there's three types of human-like creatures the witches the vampires and the demons um, the vampires are having trouble siring and we don't know why and then Matthew thinks that Ashmole 782 might help them figure out why, because it covers creature origins, um, but it could also be really dangerous and potentially used to destroy them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you guys have any other comments or thoughts on that. It seems like a good summary. I don't know. <laughs> and yeah, overall, what I love most about the pilot is that... Um, it sets up the scientific problem like right away, much earlier than it does in the book. Um, and it makes it really personal. Um, so the scene uh, with 
Marcus and Matthew talking in the cafe was one of my favorite parts of the episode, uh, especially that line from Marcus where he says, um, his last moments were ugly, confused, desperate, and he didn't know why. I did that. He was my friend, and I took his death away from him for nothing. I was just like, oh, God, Marcus, you make me feel so much. Like, like I can't even imagine like how horrible and guilty he must be feeling in that moment. Yeah, I think the the TV show is handling it much better than the book did. Um, but also like I think it's always easier to do it better when you're like the second pass at it, right? Cuz like <laughs> the first time you're just trying to create the story and then the TV show can say like okay, knowing everything that we know now, like how can we structure it in the most compelling way? So like, I don't mean that as shade against Deborah Harkness at all. I just think it's like the TV show is structured um, in a more compelling way. And you've only read the first book, right? Correct. I've only read the first book. I'll be interested to hear any, if you have any predictions on how scientifically speaking, these things get resolved. Yeah, well, we can maybe talk about that at the on the last episode or if you have a wrap-up episode. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that I am super impressed with Teresa's rowing technique. Um, one of the curses of being a former rower, or I guess current rower as well, although that's not my status, um, is that like every time you go to the gym and you see someone on the rowing machine, like usually they have no idea what they're doing and it just like, it like hurts almost physically to watch them. And so, I mean, obviously like they have a good budget and they can afford to get her a nice trainer and stuff. But I was, I was just sort of like, Ooh, I wonder how good her technique is going to be. And I was, I was quite impressed. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about, and actually I'm curious to, to hear your guys thoughts on sort of as we move forward, it's really hard for me not to, see this book as a reaction to the Twilight series by Stephanie Meyer and particularly in this episode sort of like the way that Matthew is stalking Diana and and craving her it feels like it's taking a lot of the the like themes and elements of Twilight and then kind of like tweaking them a little bit to make it better um i mean in my opinion <laughs> better right and yeah, because it seems like like he's stalking her, creeping around her room um, in a way, similar way to how Edward does with Bella, but like he has a much better motivation. It's like not just about a creepy romance, right? Like she has a book that he wants for other reasons. It has nothing to do with her as a potential romantic partner. He's just stalking her because she's the person who has the thing that he wants. And the craving kind of like, comes later so i genuinely don't think this book would have gotten published if twilight hadn't already existed because it was published in 2011 Mm -hmm. uh, which means it was it took the book took place in 2009 so it was probably mostly written in 2009 so it was probably picked up by whatever publisher in 2010 which all that is like Mm -hmm. right in the middle of when the twilight movies were coming out and anything vampire could sell now, do I think that they stand on their own? Absolutely. But Oh yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I do think that you can very much see the influence not only in the show, but the book also. Like there's a bit where in the book 
that stuck with me from the first time that I read it in 2012 or whatever it was, um, where Diana describes Matthew as sparkling. Wait, really? Like, he's not actually sparkling. I think she's talking about his smile or something like that. And I'm just like, why would you make that word choice? Why would an editor not be like, (laughs) maybe no? But... So it is heavily influenced by it. Like, there's just no, there's no way around that because it was so heavy in culture at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I really see it as, as more sort of like looking at Twilight, seeing it as like a flawed work that was like obviously super compelling to a lot of people and saying like, okay, I think I can take the like attractive parts of this and like the reasons why people like it and I think I can make it like less problematic and more interesting and like throw a bunch of history um and like stuff that I'm really interested in it um and I think you know I mean obviously this is episode one but like largely I think she was pretty successful at it although obviously like I have I (laughs) will talk more about some of my issues with the way she incorporated the evolution sort of as the show progresses I think obviously she has a lot more experience in history um, and so the way she incorporated history was much more successful than the way she incorporated evolution but you know not knowing what happens in the second and third book I'm actually really curious to see how that goes no comment (laughs) well thanks for stopping by my lab uh and i'll see you guys next week so this week i wanted to talk about the voiceover which was on the previous episode um but i we didn't quite have as much context to understand it and there was so much to talk about about alchemy um so all of the episodes start with matthew saying Once the world was full of wonders, but it belongs to humans now. We creatures have all but disappeared. And then he says, demons, vampires, and witches. But if you ignore that part, um, to me, this really reads like a description of what's happening right now on planet Earth, um, which scientists call the sixth mass extinction. And so... Yeah, especially considering that uh, this episode also gives a shout out to climate change. I just like, it's hard for me not to read it in that double meaning that like this book is about the extinction of, you know, mythical human-like creatures, but we're actually like in the middle of a extinction crisis of just ordinary animals and plants and fungi on Earth. Um, so I don't, was wondering if that had like crossed your mind at all, or if you sort of were just considering it in the context of the show. It honestly hadn't crossed my mind at all, but it strikes me as the type of thing that, like a, a work of fiction like this one, would do subtly to make it resonate with people. That maybe it doesn't cross your mind while you're watching it. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, totally. Because now that you point it out, I'm like, oh yeah, but it, it hadn't really. I hadn't really thought about it before. So I'm curious what you guys thought of, you know, the first lab scene where we're getting to see Miriam really kind of like do some sciencey stuff. <laughs> it was very pretty. <laughs> um, yeah, like overall, I I like the set design and that, you know, I'm totally fine with 
making science look slightly more attractive and glamorous um, than it would be in real life. Uh, The one part that did make me laugh, though, was when she's looking at just, like, blobs of blood sitting in a Petri dish on the microscope. Um, Because, like, blood is fairly opaque, and especially when it's, like, that thick. Like, you wouldn't be able to see anything because the light just wouldn't be able to penetrate. Um, So normally when you look at blood, you put it on a slide and um, you put a cover slip on top. So it, like, smooshes the blood down and you get a super thin layer. um, And then you can, like, see the individual cells and the light can actually penetrate through them. I think even I need that. Yeah. Because I remember (laughs) doing that in, like, middle school. (laughs) And, like, slides are fairly standard for, you know, TV set design. They're not, like, that fancy. So I was I was a little bit surprised to see that, but, you know, whatever. Um, I also thought it was interesting that um, she was not wearing any um, PPE, is what we call personal protective equipment, um, while working with human blood. If someone came in and saw her doing that, like, she would get, you know, she would be in a lot of trouble. Although you do see them drinking wine in the lab, which is also technically against the rules. But, like, I actually am reluctant to criticize that because I know scientists who eat in their lab environments when they're not supposed to all the time. Like, everybody brings coffee everywhere. Um, I guess the vampire version of coffee is wine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So... Oh, that's such an interesting thing. You know, I just assumed it was a university lab. I mean, it seems to be on campus just based on sort of like the way they go in and out between there and the library. So I'm guessing it's a a university space. I mean, it's pretty standard. I mean, most people don't really have like personal or private labs. Like, I mean, it's possible that as a vampire, they don't really care because they're not susceptible to the same human pathogens that we are but you at least ha- would ha- you'd think that they'd be like trying to blend in a little bit would i don't know how british uh universities colleges work but i feel like here in north america somebody like matthew could give the university a crap ton of money and be like this is my lab now stay out so yes you could probably self-fund a lab but if you are in a university like physical space you'd still have to follow all of their rules and regulations or they would get in a lot of trouble like you regular people who have to go through like just sexual harassment training don't know how good you have it compared to like the amount of training that I have to go through every time I start a new job it's like animal welfare training, radiation safety training, chemical safety training. Like, there's just, like, so much red tape that even if you are self-funded, like, you still have to follow environmental health and safety protocols. Your, you know, your, like, vent hoods and everything is, like, still hooked up to the same air handling system as everyone else's. You still have to, like, get rid of your biohazardous waste through their systems. Right. And of course, in this episode, we get to find out that Matthew was friends with Darwin, which is super cool. Um, And I think it really, you know, puts the show's questions about the origins of creatures in a 
evolutionary and historical context um, that is really cool. And so we'll talk a little bit more about Darwin in the next episode, um, because some other stuff comes up then. I do think this is also the first hint that we get about how old Matthew is. So Mm -hmm. it's a really good scene all around. Yeah. And so the second lab scene, I really loved overall, but it had one cringeworthy moment for me, um, which was kind of like approaching the kind of things that I really didn't like about the book, where, you know, there are just a lot of times in the book where Matthew would say something that like a real evolutionary biologist would just never say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he's introducing Diana to the lab, he says, um, we're among hundreds of laboratories using genetics to study species origins, but in our lab, humans aren't the only species we study. And so Matthew should know better that like most evolutionary biology and genetics labs don't study humans. Like, Humans are one of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species on the earth. And so, like, most labs that study species origins don't study humans. You know, they study, like, beetles or plants or, you know, sea lions or whatever. So I would have, it just, I think it would have been better if he had said something like, you know, but we study, you know, secret creatures or something. It could be possible that they just couldn't find a good way to say that. Like, that's what they were yeah. going for, but, like, I can't think of a way to word that better. Yeah, it just strikes me as, like, like a very Hollywood type of mistake to make, is that, like, well, clearly all scientists just study humans, because humans are the coolest, most important, right? you know, organisms on the planet. But I did love the mitochondrial DNA charts that they put together. Um, and so I took some screen caps and I'll find a place to post them where you can link to them in the show notes. But so I thought I would just maybe walk through that a little bit and feel free to skip ahead 30 seconds if this is not your jam. But I thought I could just explain a little bit about sort of like what mitochondria are and what their the chart is actually showing. So mitochondria are organelles. Um, they're like They're actually, um, they used to be like free living bacteria that our cells uh, sort of like captured, harnessed, and then enslaved, maybe, if you will. Um, We've incorporated them into our our cellular structure, and we basically use them to process energy, right? Uh, On Schoolhouse Rock, they say mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And so because they started out as an independent organism that we've captured and incorporated into ourselves, um, they have their own genome. So the circle that you're seeing there is the mitochondrial genome. And um, you can see it's 17,000 base pairs long. So DNA, um, the sequence of the DNA is a sequence of base pairs. So the sequence has almost 17,000 items in it. I'm sorry, where do we see and, this? Oh, are you looking at yeah. it? Which one? Are we on Ben Van Gouda? Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. They're, okay. The, they're actually the same. It's just, you know, they got rid of some numbers. Yeah, so, so each of the little colored chunks is a gene that codes for either a protein or an 
RNA um, that's performing some function. So, uh, right. So the way I actually maybe this is useful to know if you're because this whole uh, if the premise of the show is that witches are losing mutations, it makes sense to think about what mutations actually are. So a mutation is when the sequence of the DNA changes from what it was before, and that can sometimes have an impact on how the organism functions, or sometimes it can have no impact. Um, A marker is... So a marker could be a mutation, but it's... It's really kind of just what it says, like a marker. It's a a known sequence that tells you something else about the genome or the sequences around it. So, for instance, um, there can be like really complex sets of mutations that are often inherited together, and a marker could be just one of those mutations, or maybe even not the mutation that causes the effect, but just something that happens to be nearby that they know is associated with it. So it's basically, it's a marker is just a sequence that you know something about, and, and then it tells you something about the sequence nearby, but you don't necessarily, but the marker isn't necessarily what you're interested in itself it just tells you about what you're interested in i don't know if that made any sense yes i sound very confident yeah so so the mitochondrial dna that we're looking at the sort of um the big colored chunks are the most the larger genes that the proteins that kind of like perform important actions in the mitochondria and and the RNA, some bigger RNA segments that also perform in, important functions. And then there's all those little blue stripes that you can kind of see around the edges. Mm-hmm. And those are um, the tRNA structures. Or sorry, it's so it's the DNA that codes for the tRNA that allows the mitochondria to synthesize proteins. Um, and so... That's why they're all really small because tRNA are sort of like tiny structures compared to uh, an enzyme or a big RNA structure. It takes a lot more sequence to code for those. Okay. Um, And so that's why a lot of those labels, if you are getting flashbacks to your high school biology class and thinking like, oh, those sound like amino acids, that's because um, they're labeled for the tRNAs that um, are used to link those amino acids and proteins. So there's like the tyrosine tRNA, the cysteine tRNA. They uh, Each amino acid has its own tRNA that's used to link it into a protein. Uh, and you can totally cut all of that if you want. <laughs> or like paste it at the end. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, f- I found it, if people are super science nerds, they might find that interesting. Oh, so, okay. So here's something that I do think is kind of interesting. So the human mitochondrial DNA in real life only has 34 genes on it. And, but according to the labels here, it says protein synthesis 149. So I think maybe they just wanted um, it to seem like 
there were more proteins involved or was like more important than it actually was. They just sort of like made the number bigger. Okay. <laughs> 34 didn't seem flashy enough. But yeah, in general, the mitochondria is like, I mean, it's hugely important to the functioning of the cell, right? Like you would not survive without your mitochondria. And there are a ton of very serious genetic diseases that are caused by mutations in the mitochondria. But the mitochondria is really only a small proportion of our genome. So the human genome has about 3 billion base pairs, and this mitochondrial DNA has about 17,000. So it's like a tiny, tiny fraction of the total DNA. And so it seems weird that all of the genes for witchcraft would be only located on the mitochondria. It seems like they would probably be more sprinkled throughout the whole genome. So I think what they tried to do is basically use the mitochondrial genome as a stand-in for the larger genome. And so it's more manageable. Yeah, I mean, like, you can show it all in one chart. And and actually have mutations labeled on it. Like the human, the full human genome being 3 billion base pairs, you know, like you can't even really show it on one chart. And, you know, there's like 23 times two chromosomes. That's crazy. So I think it was a very good visual choice. That they chose to just zero in on the, the mitochondrial genome. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting about the mitochondrial genome is that um, it is inherited matrilineally so you you know most of your chromosomes you get one from your mom and one from your dad and then when you're getting ready to pass on your genes to your offspring your maternal and your paternal chromosomes they actually like mix together so what you pass on is a combination of of what you got from your mom and what you got from your dad um but your mitochondria since you got all of it from your mom she got it all from her mom um, you can really track inheritance in a in a kind of cool and different way and in a slightly more powerful way with mitochondria. Um, so I think the other reason why they chose um, to just show the mitochondrial genome is because they're talking about, is that in this episode or was that? A, oh, no. They hint at it. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. And so we'll learn more in the next episode a little bit about how they're using mitochondria to track these like original clans um, of witches. Um, but that's actually something that they can do in real human populations is basically like track descendants on a really big scale using mitochondrial DNA and show, you know, that like big regions sort of like all descended in, you know, from one woman sort of like as one clan group. And so I wrote down one other quote um, that I think kind of tells us some interesting stuff about the science. Um, so I think it was Marcus who said, or was Which, it Matthew? Do you remember? The, the Beatrice Good quote? Actually, it was Matthew. Yeah, that's Matthew. Um, so Matthew says, Beatrice Good shows far fewer markers common amongst witches, indicating that her ancestors, as the centuries pass, relied less and less upon witchcraft to survive. Now, is this pattern of denying power the reason why witches will eventually become extinct? And so I just wanted to unpack this a little bit because this actually is, um, this is kind of invoking a little bit of Darwinian theory, 
and sort of like evolutionary biology, um, but it's not really explaining it that well. And so basically, so what he's saying is these special traits that are only seen in witches are um, decreasing in number sort of as time is progressing forward. And so it seems like there's some kind of selection um, is how Darwin would phrase it um, against them. So basically that for some reason, the witches that have fewer of these markers are actually surviving better and living to produce more offspring. Cause that's really the only Darwinian way that you could get these markers decreasing in number through time. And so, so basically like there's some sort of negative penalty for having these markers. Like, you know, if you get caught using your powers and then maybe you get killed by an angry mob or something. Um, I think that's sort of the, at least that's what the evolutionary biologist in me is wants to read into it. As a regular old person, I don't know where I was going with mm-hmm. that. That's how I always interpreted it also, that, like, throughout the years, either they... the, the uh, Throughout the years, the witches who did their best to fit in better and blend in were the ones who survived. And therefore, mm-hmm. witches were losing their magic. Yeah, and so that basically, like, if you have less powers it's easier for you to blend in of course there's also a kind of lamarckian way to interpret that so i don't know if you remember this from high school biology so lamarck was the guy who said that the reason why giraffes have such long necks is because they like strain and like stretch really far and they like they stretch their neck and make it a little bit longer and then they pass those on to their offspring And so I think, like, if you just take his words at face value, there's a way to interpret that as basically, like, as you use your powers less, you're less likely to pass them on to your offspring. Um, But I'm going to trust Matthew that he's too smart for that, and he isn't actually thinking in that way. I don't even think, well, like, if I did learn about this dude in high school, I do not remember him. He and Darwin had, like, a big feud. So Darwin and Lamarck were arguing over was are changes uh, in organisms over time. So, yeah, Darwin was very opposed to the idea that things that happen to an organism in its life, that those characteristics can be passed on to their offspring, whereas Lamarck definitely thought that they could. So I don't think we learned that much new about the the science and the world building in this episode, um, but we do kind of flesh out what we already know a little bit more. Um, So now we know that all of the creatures are dying out, not just vampires. Um, We learned that the demons are having mental health problems that's leading to suicides and witches are losing their powers gradually over generations. Um, And there's some strong indication that genetics and evolution is involved in the cause and it's going to feature prominently in the story. Yeah. Non-sciencey. Is there anything else non-sciencey that you wanted to discuss today? Um, just that I feel like the Twilight comparisons keep on getting better and better. Like, you know, Matthew's like super old and super rich. And, you know, I think people might be tempted to, yeah, sort of like accuse 
it a little bit of wish fulfillment, but like I don't think there's anything wrong with some wish fulfillment as long as it's well done. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Like at some point, like you have to try enough like get rich schemes that like one of them is gonna work out and also just like, you know, the time value of money. Yeah, like invest twenty dollars so you know, five hundred years ago and presumably you're rich now. And also, I just, you know, I really enjoyed the book, but I never really bought into the romance when I was reading the book. Like, the chemistry didn't really feel real to me. And so I was really surprised by how much I was, like, starting to buy into the chemistry between Diane and Matthew by the end of this episode. And I really loved that she came to him at the end of the episode, um, because I think part of building any good romance is that you kind of have like both partners sequentially escalating things back and forth and that was kind of like again like one of the things that I really didn't like about Twilight is it just felt like you know Bella was super passive and just like waiting to be pursued and I love that Diana is doing some pursuing of her own yeah me too I'd I'd never really thought of it that way before but I do like that about Diana Cool. Well, thanks for stopping by my lab, uh, and I'll see you guys next week. So my main takeaway from this episode is that demons can be born to humans. And, you know, this really throws a wrench into the idea of creatures as separate species, because... In biology, we think of, like, by definition, a species is sort of like a group of organisms that can breed within each other and only within each other. You know, like a cat doesn't give birth to a dog. A bear doesn't give birth to a cow. Ruin all my dreams. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm really sorry. Um, and And so that's, like, really one of the defining characteristics between like what makes something a species versus what is just a trait or what we might call like a phenotype or a morph, you know? So like a brown dog can give birth to a white dog and that's what makes brown dogs and white dogs not different species. Right. Um, And so going back to Darwin, Matthew's good friend, he would have called this uh, true breeding in uh, on the origins of species. Um, and so and so the fact that, you know, demons and humans and witches are not necessarily true breeding, it was like one of my problems with the book. I mean, more so the language surrounding it, but it does um, make me really curious about where the books and the series is going um, as far as like the ultimate conclusion right no comment (laughs) yeah so this is the episode where they have they're talking about the um the forums and sophie's boyfriend nathaniel mentions nathaniel mentions that demons can be born to humans and and like grow up not knowing what they are and then like needing a community And, like, support. And as a book reader, I really appreciated the sort of, like, 
shout out to um book Matthew's like weird wolf stuff. I think it's great that the TV show didn't include it because that was actually like another one of my complaints about the book and and sort of like TV shows and books in general is that you know scientists don't have appropriately narrow expertises. They're sort of like, oh, you can be like a physicist and a biologist and a chemist. And so um, in the book, Matthew is both a geneticist and an expert in like wolf behavior and ecology. And those are like, for the most part, pretty separate disciplines. And no one would really be that good at both of them. I mean, he's been alive a long time, so you can kind of explain it that mm-hmm. way. <laughs> he's had a lot of time to master different things. Um but both modern ecology and modern genetics haven't really been around that long. So I also really liked the twist on vampire lore here that they're not undead exactly. They're not just sort of like mystically animated corpses. Um, they're more like differently alive. Um, so Matthew talks about how they have really efficient energy use. Um, and it's not that they don't breathe or their hearts don't beat. It's just that their hearts don't need to beat very often. And so that's why they don't need to breathe that much mm-hmm. either. Uh, they're, you know, don't have to oxygenate the blood as much. Just to bring this sort of all around, I've always wondered how much of that is influenced by Twilight. Because I think pre-Twilight, people didn't mess with vampires that often. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'd just be... No, that's true. And because, like... uh. Stephanie Meyer did, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think she was the first person to try and come up with a genetic explanation for vampires. And so I believe in the Twilight universe that vampires have an extra chromosome or something. Oh my God. I thought that was these books. No, I think that's Twilight. Because there is discussion. Is that also in here? Maybe that's not in the first book. There is chromosome discussion in these books, but I forget. I forget exactly what it was. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in Twilight. Yeah, so in Twilight, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes and vampires have 25 pairs. Interesting. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to to keep an eye on that as we go forward. Not rereading Twilight, but I... uh... (laughs) Maybe I'll spend some time on Wikipedia. And then finally, um, in this episode, they talk about the four original witch clans, which goes back to um, what we were talking about last episode about the mitochondrial DNA being passed down by um, the maternal lineage. And so uh, it makes sense that if a lot of the witch markers were on the mitochondrial genome, that you would be able to uh, analyze them and narrow it down to, like, the four original clans. I'm liking how much of the science does appear to be making sense from from your end. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, the science is actually pretty well done. Most of my problems with the book were not with the science itself. It was more with, like, the specific language around some of the science. Um, where, like, I felt like if she had just gotten a biologist to kind of, like, read through it and just, like, clean up the dialogue a little bit, it could have been so much better. Um, and especially, you know, given how much she clearly, you know, cares about different 
uh, disciplines and like history and and it's like super detail oriented along that line. Uh, right. You know, I feel like it made she could have easily just like found an expert at her university. I mean, I don't know. Maybe as a professor, uh, you like don't want to share your vampire fiction book with your coworkers from other departments and be like, "Can you read this and tell me if this makes sense?" <laughs> That would be an interesting lunch hour. Yeah, so again, this episode didn't add a whole lot to the science and world building, um, but we get the hint that at least demons aren't species in the way that we're used to thinking about them. And and we did find out about the four original witch clans, so that's something to keep an eye on. It, it might become important later on um, since we do keep hearing so much about the bishops and and diana's ancestors all right so one of my favorite things about the book that i think the show um, also does really well is showing how clearly diana is driven by her intellectual curiosity uh, her growing interest in the ashmole manuscript and in matthew it all totally makes sense based on her characterization as a historian and an academic and i just like all of the, you know, maybe like bad or unwise decisions that she makes, I totally buy them. Um, and and I'm just like starting to really love Diana and appreciate her. Uh, and again, uh, like I mentioned last episode, um, in this episode, we again have Matthew and Diana sort of taking turns um, pursuing each other. And I think it's, it's really building up the romance in a good way. Um, I also... So we don't need to discuss this here, but I would love to hear your thoughts on vampirism as a sex metaphor, because I feel like that's made really explicit in this episode. Sort of like the whole idea of like the there being a temptation to feed and then having to resist that and then like ultimately either like giving in or not. Um, I think that idea is like really emphasized a lot in uh, in the show and in Twilight much more than Buffy. And those are like really the only three vampire universes that I'm familiar with. And, and yeah, and I guess just on Buffy, I felt like most of her, her vampire romances were not really about bloodlust itself in the same way that Twilight and now a discovery of witches is like, I don't know, something about like the bloodlust of vampirism feels much more central to the romance here. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts about that. Do you want them now? Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. We can talk about it now. Well, I'm not really prepared <laughs> to, but my general yeah. thoughts is even if an author doesn't intend for it to come across as a sex metaphor, the original, well, not the original, but, like, Dracula was really written as kind of, or a big part of that was a sex metaphor. So a lot of the times, if you just stick to the lore, it happens whether or not you want it to. Yeah. No, I mean, and I definitely think the sex metaphor is there in Buffy. It's just, like, less central. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, like, less emphasized. I mean, but there is, in Buffy, there is two like an element of sort of like danger and wrongness, you know, and, you know, in the way that like, you know, his traditionally 
sex has also been treated as like a dangerous and wrong thing and so I think there's like something that's kind of encoded in us societally to yeah uh, to like think about sex that way as much as we try not to I think a lot of this will come up in later episodes uh, but the thing about mm-hmm. discovery of witches is it's one of the very few vampire fictions that just will will be will talk about sex explicitly not mm-hmm. so it it loses some of the metaphor there because it doesn't need it yeah yeah i definitely see that so like i i you get the metaphor in early episodes but i think it more is just about the bringing together of them and mm-hmm. metaphor wise i think the show or the book concentrates a lot more on alchemy and how yeah. the and the metaphors in that and how they can relate to the characters that's a really good point sorry i've also i was just kind of like sitting here and thinking about how it's always like a male vampire and a female human and how like what that says about gender relations and like who's tempted yeah and like <laughs> and and the different burdens that the the different sexes bear for like having to resist sex traditionally no that's true and like buffy just had so much time that they were able to i think come at it from a lot of different angles but when you think about like buffy definitely started with like her and angel well thanks for stopping my lab uh i'll see you guys next week Thank you so much for listening to this science-heavy bonus episode. Uh, I hope you found it interesting. Remember, you can always find the show on Twitter at DesireMadeReal. And give us a, a shout if you have any questions for Dr. Anya or anything else. And you can find more Eloquent Gushing shows at EloquentGushing.com, as well as on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at EloquentGushing. And until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there's a new beginning. train if I should wait for it to go past. This is a bad thing about recording during the rush hour. Okay, there's another train. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is like this is literally the time of day in which there's like a, a train every few minutes. Sorry, another train. <laughs> Where do you live that there are so many trains? I don't it's um it's a commuter train. <laughs> it's actually the commuter train that I use. Oh. So like I purposely chose to live this close to it. That makes sense then. Um, so um a mutation is just oh my god, this fucking train. Oh, see, that was an express train, you can tell, because it's going much faster.
Thanks for checking out my lab, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>